Boom! There Boom. it is, ladies and gents. It is Monday, and you know what? If you're ready to do some investing, you're ready to do something when it comes to real estate, you're gonna need a lot of this. The person I'm talking today today is gonna help you guys get that. So here we go. Shut up and sit down. The Business Bros Podcast was created for you. Learn from the business professionals who come to share their stories. Find out what's working in business and social media, what's hot and what's not, straight from the mouths of successful entrepreneurs out there doing the real work. And now, welcome to another episode of Business, business Bros. Bros. <laughs> yeah. All right, and it's time for us to drop the heat. All right, all right. Here we go, everybody. Thanks so much. Uh, wait, 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 Before we jump to the show, just a quick reminder to please subscribe on whichever platform it is that you're listening to us on today. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, drop a review, help other like-minded business owners find value from our awesome guests while we rise up in those podcast rankings. We'll sincerely appreciate every single one of you for it. And if you want to be a guest on the show, we'd love to have you on to learn from you as well. Go to www.businessbros.biz. Schedule your time slot. Don't forget to follow us on all our social medias at Business Bros Pod. All right, everybody, we're so excited and honored to bring yet another incredible guest, incredible guest to the Business Bros Pod. Today's guest is the managing director of an opportunistic real estate fund, which focuses on the acquisition and management of commercial real estate. He's responsible for the investment strategy, fundraising, asset management, and operations for their current fund, which has been investing in manufactured housing communities and self-storage facilities. To date, our guest has already accumulated upwards of $47 million in assets under management, and investors have seen an average internal return of, get this, 85%. Woo! Their most recent project has been so successful that not only did they meet their original fundraising goal of $35 million, in fact, they surpassed it, raising $56 million for their next round of investment properties. Want to learn more? Tune in. Joining us today uh, from Crystal View Capital Funding out of Sin City, Las Vegas, welcome to the show, Matthew Richardella. <laughs> Did I get the name right? Was it close? You got it. You got it. Thanks for having me, guys. Really? I nailed it? Yeah, you nailed, nailed it. it. Hell yes. No practice. There you go. There you go. It doesn't happen often, but you did it. Ooh, right. I have one skill. I have one skill. Thanks so much for joining right. us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It sounds like you guys have a lot of fun over here. Oh, dude, we have oh, a ton yes. of fun. That's just the that's the point of being on on out in life, in my opinion. You just got to do what you got to do. You got to smile. You got to enjoy it. So, Matt, let's just jump into this thing. James had a great uh, intro for you. Um, what what? Why did you get into the loan space? What what drove you here? Yeah. So just uh, just a, a refresher. So what we do is we manage, own, and operate manufactured housing communities and and self-storage facilities nationwide. So we're not in, we're not a lender per se, we're more an operator and an owner. So what we do is we raise capital, mostly from high net worth individuals. And um, we go out, we buy these properties, we look to turn them around, we find them when they're non-performing or underperforming. And we have a really, really strong and experienced in-house asset management team that does a fantastic job with whipping these properties into shape, getting them to produce strong free cash flow. And then we in turn make some very, very positive distributions to our 
our partners and our funds. So it's it's gone extremely well. I watched the yesterday a documentary on Hulu on uh, the up and down of WeWork. Uh, and when you're talking about the uh, storage facilities and, and purchasing them, um, why purchase them versus leasing them out? Or, or are you are you trying to like w- with with your particular business, are you focusing your attention 100 percent on just storage spaces and storage units uh, with, with manufactured homes? Or are you trying to go into other spaces as well? No, we, we have a specific focus on self-storage and manufactured home communities. And that's pretty much all that we do. Sometimes we'll find a property that's a hybrid where you've got some retail or an industrial component along with storage, but we don't go out and do office or multifamily or, or any of the other asset classes. We have a specific niche focus on these two investment classes and it's worked really well for us. And, uh, you know, we kind of think about it as if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm, I like that. Well, how do you, how does one get into this space? I mean, it, don't get me wrong. It, it's, it sounds like it's very lucrative. I mean, people need the storage units. I mean, there's so many people right now moving in and out of countries, moving in and out of places. Housing is super expensive. So having the manufactured yeah. home parks are definitely a, an, an uptick, but it's not the sexiest. It's not the funnest sounding thing when you first get into it. So no. what drove you there? What, what got you there? You know, we have a little saying over here and you're, you, you're spot on in, in what you just said they're not sexy, but the cash flow is sexy. So mm. they're kind of those tarnished, ugly property types, like a redheaded step, step stepchild. But when you get into them and you could buy them right and operate them right, boy, the cash flow is sexy. And that's why we're in them. And that's why I got in them about 15 years ago. And that's why our investors have chosen to make commitments to our funds because we have a reputation of delivering these outsized returns. That's what I'm talking about. Every investor wants a return on investment. That's that's really the the main point of what they're doing. And and Jay's mentioned in your intro, upwards of the eighty percent investment uh, return on investment. So yeah, l- let me uh, let me just touch upon that. So that was at the beginning of Fund One. Those return pro- profiles go down over time. And in Fund One, we had a fund level return of about forty five percent. So a lot better than you're going to get in the public markets. A lot better than you're going to get in a bond and those investors that are chasing yield are very pleased that they've made commitments to our funds. And I'm proud to say our first fund is now fully, we've gone full cycle. So that means we've bought all the investments we bought, we sold all of them. So the fund has been fully liquidated. All of the proceeds have been distributed to our partners and um, they've gotten some fabulous returns. And as a result of that, they've recommitted into fund two and fund three. So We've got a really strong following and um, we've got a lot of past investors that continue to reinvest with us. All right, 15 years down the road, let's let's kind of go back a little bit, right? This is like your epic journey here. You you started off just getting into the space. You've developed and grew your own portfolio. Then you went into syndication? Like, is, is that what I'm hearing? Like, I want to make sure that people understand that it's uh, when an investor comes in, what you're looking at. Is that syndication? Yeah. So what a syndication is, is when you have a single property that you want to raise capital on. So for us, a blind a, a fund is a blind pool. So basically, investors are making commitments into a quote unquote blind pool. And we have discretion to go out there and buy properties without essentially their knowledge or their permission. In a syndication, you have 
let's say an apartment complex under contract, you'll do uh, a full underwriting and you'll provide due diligence and background information on that single asset and you'll raise capital on that one deal. So the difference for us um, in a fund versus a syndication is we're, we're, we have full discretion and we have a blind pool. So there's, there's advantages and disadvantages for both. The fund structure has worked well for us because we've got the capital at our disposal. In a syndication, you've got to raise it for that deal and it may not work out for us. Once we find the deal, we've already got the capital. We've got the ability to take that deal down immediately if we like it because we've got the cash. So you're in a stronger position. If if you have people who want to invest with you, are there certain limitations? Uh, for example, do you have to be an accredited investor to be part of what what you're doing? You do. You do, Ernan. And yeah, we, you have to be an accredited investor, which means you have to have a minimum net worth of $1 million or you earn uh, $250,000 of W-2 income per year. And those aren't my rules. Those are the SEC's rules. They got to protect people, right? That's well, right. Let's, let's talk about how, finding a deal. I mean, yeah. there, there's so much in when, you know, when I think of cities like San Diego, for example, we're not really uh, having a ton of land. So finding the opportunity to put some of these uh, storage units or some of these mobile places in place, uh, I'd imagine it takes quite a bit of work to find a deal. And I mean, funding, it seems like you got that down, but finding a deal might seem a little more difficult. It is. It is, especially in this environment. You know, the market's hot. There's a lot of new investors right now entering into the space. So we've got a lot of institutional investors. A lot of private equity is coming into both of these two asset classes. So it makes our job challenging. But our ace in the hole, Hernan, is we find our deals off market. So rather than um, participating in auctions with 5, 10, 15 other buyers and getting into bidding wars, we actually go to owners directly and we find them mostly through cold calling. We have a great sales team that's on the phone all day, every day, making phone calls, building rapport and relationships with these owners. Some of them I've been in building relationships uh, with over the last 10, 15 years. And that's how we put our deals together. It's a relationship game. And um, because of that, we could buy right. And if we buy right, you know, we've proven that we could deliver some pretty strong returns. You got a map right behind you, the U.S. map. And with the Internet, especially post-COVID, the world has shrunk. I mean, everything's gotten uh, more accessible. We're able to see more, faster, transmit uh, everything from, you know, electronic tax returns to sending PDFs online to whatever we need. Uh, are you focused in a specific demographic area or has the world become smaller, allowed you to kind of reach out and be almost anywhere? No, see, we're very opportunistic. You look behind me, you see that map. If there's a deal anywhere on that map, we'll go after it if it checks the boxes. But it has to check the boxes. It has to be of a certain size, produce a certain level of income, be of a certain quality, have a motivated seller, be in a, a market that's got good fundamentals. If all those boxes are checked, being opportunistic, we'll go after the deal, whether it's in California, if it's in Massachusetts, if it's in Illinois, if it's in Texas, if it's in Montana, we're really agnostic to the geography. So we'll go where the deal is. How did you how did you um, decide whether an opportunity or a deal 
is a good deal that it does check those boxes what what is it that that you know differentiates one from another is it just the cash flow is it the purchase price uh yeah. is it the the way you structure the deal in the financing terms like what are some of those key things that you're like you know when that happens we're automatically pulling the trigger you know it's a great question and there's no simple answer and uh, you know part of the answer is it's all of the above of the questions you just asked me i mean we go in and we look and we underwrite these deals on a cap rate approach to start with. So we're looking at deals um, anywhere from four caps to six, seven caps, but that's not enough. We need to also identify there's upside. And what that means is what could we do to this property to make it generate even more cash flow? Can we raise the rents? Can we increase occupancy? Can we decrease the expenses in some way, shape or form? So that's also a part of our underwriting. Then, the asset has to be of a certain quality. You know, sometimes the numbers work, the financial model works, you go out and you take a look at the property and it's in complete disarray and it's just not going to work for your investment. So- Dude, I almost had you. It was close, <laughs> close. We, we would have to pass on those deals. So it, there's really no simple answer, but the best, probably the best answer I could give you, you know, it's pattern recognition from doing it so long you just kind of know, you know, it's one of those things where you've seen thousands and probably in my case, hundreds of thousands of deals. When you see, you just, when you find one, you just know, but it, it does have to check those boxes. And um, if it does, we go after it aggressively. Well, let's talk about the uh, manufactured homes. Uh, I'm assuming this is a, a particular type of complex. And when I'm thinking of that, it's the type where you, uh, the, the homeowner might, might own the actual manufactured home, but rents the land space out. Um, when you, when you have those kinds of deals, especially in a market like today, where the price of a traditional home or condo is ridiculously expensive, uh, what's that market like within the manufactured homes? Yeah, you're actually you're absolutely right, Hernan. The way that the fundamentals of of the asset class work is the actual resident owns their home, which is personal property, and they set it up on the land, which is owned by the manufactured housing community owner, which would be us. And they pay lot rent to us, and we provide the infrastructure, the roads, the landscaping, the utilities, so on, a clubhouse, so on and so forth. But um, to answer your question, yeah because of what's going on in the uh, residential um, market right now with prices where they're at and how a lot of these buyers are getting priced out, the lowest form of affordable housing is manufactured housing. So we're seeing a lot of interest for buyers that are either retiring or forming new families and just can't afford to go into a traditional residential single family residence are now coming into uh, manufactured housing communities. So it's, it's, going really well for us on selling homes and increasing occupancy. I've also noticed that uh, in a lot of those communities, they tend to be like a 55 and up type community. Um, are a lot of the places that you that you acquire, do you tend to keep them that way or do you kind of restructure with, with people needing more and more housing uh, and it's just not being as affordable? Are you opening up the market to, you know, maybe that 25, 30 year old individual that can afford that place or are you keeping it at the at the restricted age? Yeah, I mean, the communities that we buy that are 55 and older, we keep them that way um, because there there are uh, restrictions in place and you have to get sometimes a license to get it 
to a, 50, a designated 55 and older. And quite frankly, those residents are better payers um, because they tend to have higher incomes and no dependents and they could afford the rent more so than a, a family just getting started. So if it's a 55 and older, we want to keep it that way. But most of our communities are family and workforce housing communities. So we, we cater to those families. We have events for kids in the clubhouse. Um, we try to promote uh, pride of ownership within the communities where they're cleaning up their homes and they're making their homes nicer. And, and um, at one point when they sell them, they're going to be worth a lot more. So we like to do these things to enhance the pride of ownership and make it a place where people are proud to live. Mm. So when when you, you talk about how you need licensing to get them to that 55 and up uh, level, is that more like a, a premium in, in your experience as you collect and, and uh, acquire more in these portfolios? Uh, is that something that you prefer versus uh, versus no age restriction? Is it because because of the cash flow? Yeah, I, I think they're so when you're looking to sell these investments and it's a 55 and older, I think you're going to get a higher valuation, which means a lower cap rate. Buyers are willing to pay more for a 55 and older community. So to the extent we have those, I believe them to be more valuable than um, than let's call it all age and family communities. So we would never want to take a 55 and older and open it up to anybody. With the, when you get investors to come on board, um, are, are most of the investors that, that work with you, are they looking mostly for a cash flow type investment or are they looking for a capital gain investment, something down the road, or are they tied to a, spe a specific property? Uh, and when that property uh, gets sold, they get cashed out. How, do, how does a, an investor deal work with you? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, I think it's a hybrid. Some investors are looking for that cash on cash return. They want to yield. Other investors are looking for an all in return, meaning what's my return throughout the life of the fund, both in the form of cash flow and when you do a final liquidation, sell off all the assets and distribute all of the excess cash. Um, so we, we get a combination of, of both types of investors within the funds. Let's talk a little bit, a little personal stuff here. So, I mean, you've been at this for a number of years and now you're looking at a deal and it's like you said, you just know, like you can tell now, but if you can go back to when you were first starting, what, what was Matt like first getting into this business? I'm sure you couldn't look at a deal and just be like, yeah, that's a great one. You kind of just learn, you know, I, I know there's a lot of uh, young real estate agents that get into the space and they're like, you know, a, a dog trying to bark at every car that goes by. They wouldn't know what to do if they got one. That's a joker line, by the way. Uh, so, you know, I wonder like Matt at the beginning, when you were going after these deals, what kind of mistakes were you making? What kind of you know learning experiences did you have to put you in a position where now you look at a deal and it just makes sense? A lot of bumps and bruises. And I, I started as a real estate agent myself. And what you said was exactly how I was. I came into the game green and um, you know, I was just dying to do deals and I made a lot of mistakes. Luckily, I didn't make any where I lost any money for investors or was I ever late on a payment to a bank. So I've never had a even a default on any loan with a financial institution, nor was there any loss that I've ever had with, with an investor who's invested with me. But um, with that being said, I had my fair share of mistakes and you learn from them. Um, you learn from others' mistakes. You know, they say a genius is somebody that not only learns from their mistakes, but learns from others' mistakes. And I tried to do that to the best of my ability. So you kind of, 
you gather all of the, you, in your mind, you, you remember all of these mistakes throughout the past for me, let's call it 15, 17 years. And when you look at deals, the subconscious is almost going, oh yeah, don't do that deal. Remember back in 2009, you got burnt because you had too many park owned homes or you had this type of system for your sewer or whatever the case may be. You've, you've got this reference, all these different references for these deals that you've done and some that you've passed on. So that knowledge is invaluable. And I continue to learn and that's a never ending game. You know, 30 years from now, we'll, we'll still be learning and getting better. So speaking of learning, I mean, a rewind, right? If we rewound back like 2008, for example, not a very good time to be in the real estate game. Or if you were cash heavy, it was a beautiful time to be in the real estate game when you're acquiring assets, right? Depending on the perspective that you're, that you were in, we're in 2021 money right now is cheap. I mean, it's super inexpensive to grab, you know, mega amounts and people are pulling them out of their equities and now I don't know what they're doing with them. Hopefully good things. But what do you feel about where the market is and being leveraged? Uh, is it some, is it, is it a liability right now at this point, or is it something that, you know, you're, you're taking on this debt because it, the money is cheap and you're not worried about it because of the cash flow? Yeah. I mean, look back in 2008, there was a liquidity crisis, right? That's what happened. There was all the liquidity dried up in the system. Today, liquidity is everywhere and there's so much new capital chasing yield. So, I mean, for us, we underwrite deals very conservatively. You're right, debt is so cheap. So we're taking on debt. However, we're taking on very conservatively, let's call it 60, 65% leverage. And in doing that, even if we lose a lot of our tenants or at least, if some black swan event occurs, we still feel very confident in our cash flow and our ability to service our debt and our ability to pay our expenses and our ability to pay our investors. So um, I think you got to be conservative regardless of the market conditions. But right now, I think is an extraordinary time. There's a lot of liquidity. I think we've got some runway to go because of COVID. I think this thing could run out a couple more years. But, um, you know, we keep our head down and we stay disciplined and stick to our approach that's worked for us. And we try not to get too, uh, too exuberant about what's going on in the market and stick to, you know, what we know best, which is conservative underwriting. And we believe in the long run that will work for us. I like that. You know, it, being 60, 65%, that's good because if you have a swing 10, 20%, you're still, you're still pretty good. When COVID hit, there were a lot of laws that, uh, that got passed in trying to protect, uh, homeowners as well as renters. So you had a lot of renters that went into a space where they couldn't afford to make their uh, rent payments or couldn't afford to make their mortgage payments. And you're in a unique position where you're, I guess tenants actually are both have a mortgage and a rent to pay. Uh, how was, how did COVID and, and laws affect you and your business uh, with, with your tenants? Yeah. You know, certain state had certain States we operate in had rent moratoriums, or I'm sorry, eviction moratoriums, meaning that we couldn't evict. And obviously that makes it challenging, but I will say this, Hernan, all in all um, we did quite well. You know, we probably were at about 90% collection rate throughout COVID. And we went through this unprecedented time where we didn't know what was going to happen. So we were, I was pleasantly surprised, quite frankly, on, on how we weathered this COVID storm and how we continued to collect rent. And occupancies even grew 
in certain markets. So it was really, um, you know, exceptional to see that. And I'll say this too, compared to 2008 and COVID, these asset classes have proven to be very resilient, um, very um, resilient for a downturn in the economy and defensive in nature. You know, some of the other asset classes, I mean, look at hospitality as an example, look at office space. You're at you're at home right now. If it wasn't for COVID, maybe you'd be in an office. Those property types took a massive hit in terms of occupancy and collections. And a lot of those investors lost money. But those that were invested in the manufactured housing and storage space, both in 08 and during COVID, we weathered the storm quite well. So it proves out this uh, this defensive thesis that that we've always thought about when we think of these two property types. So what does the future hold? We're in 2021. I, I listened to an interview with Pitbull the other day, and I love how he described these. It's 2020WON2021. I'm wondering, you know, what, what's your expectation? We just closed out Q1. Uh, Iris extended their deadline to May 17th. A lot of different changes. New presidency coming in, right? What what do you see going forward for your company? Uh, and how are how are how's the your optimistic point of view with everything going on? Yeah, man, we're, we stay cautiously optimistic, right? So going back to a previous point, we don't, we don't want to get overly exuberant because of the market. We do feel good about where interest rates are, how cheap capital is for us, the ease in which we've been able to raise equity capital within our funds. And, um, you know, the opportunity set, we have a great pipeline. We, right now we have about $38 million of new deals we're going to be closing on in the next 30 to 60 days. And we feel really confident about those deals and their ability to produce cash flow for our investors. But we keep a keen eye on what's going on out there. I mean, if, if we hit a point where inflation really kicks in and interest rates start to rise, you know, we're we're loose and we're nimble and we're going to pull back and we're going to tighten up our underwriting and maybe we're going to ride out a storm and wait for some fallout to occur and then get aggressive again and start buying. So one of the one of the strong positions, in, in my opinion, to being smaller is um, you, you could be very nimble and you don't have to be over invested at one point in time. You could wait for troughs in the market and then go in heavy. And that's that's kind of what we like to do. That would be beautiful. Ideal, right? Buy low, sell yeah. high. Buy low, keeping cash flow higher. Yeah, those are great uh, great investment strategies if we can do it correctly. Uh, man, right. I want to be uh, conscious of your time, and I know we're getting close to that hour. So before we head out, can you let people know if they want to be part of the next fund you put together or if they are interested in uh, getting in, in whether it's a storage unit or a manufactured home? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, so you could email us at invest at crystalviewcapital.com. Visit our website, www.crystalviewcapital.com. If you've got some questions, reach out to us. we got a great team. They could answer your questions. And if it we're a good fit, it'd be great to welcome you um, into our company. Awesome. All right, ladies and gents, that's it. It's Friday. 
It's the weekend. It's coming around the corner. There's so many things for you to think about. And you know what? Investing is one of those things. I mean, let's face it. The market is hot. You probably have some extra cash. I know you got some stimmy money. You need to put that money to work for you. There are many different opportunities. And even if you're not a accredited investor, you should start thinking like one. Learn from them. Take some advice. Take some lessons. You know, a smart person makes uh, learns from their mistakes and a genius learns from the mistakes of others. So like I said, we had Matt on the show. Matt, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, sharing what you're what you're into, what you're doing, and, and the lessons you learned, because there's a lot of people out there that are thinking about stepping in a similar space and just don't know what to do. So thank you very much for coming aboard. Thanks for having me, Hernan. It was my pleasure and a lot of fun. You got a great show. Thank you. All right, ladies and gents, enjoy the rest of the week, and we'll talk to you soon. Peace, and we're out. Thank you for listening to the Business Bros Podcast. Are you looking to get more clients or to increase your income? Hernan, the Business Bro, can help you generate referrals through the power of podcasting. And James, the Insurance Bro with Pipeline Insurance, can help you effectively add insurance to your existing business. If you are ready to create wealth today and generational wealth for tomorrow, email businessbros at csfirst.com to schedule a free consultation or join the Business Bros Network, www.businessbros.biz.